is winning this morning. Um, if you guys don't know me, I'm Bren, and I don't like standing in front of a crowd, but here I am, shaking and nervous. Just to give you the announcements, there's nothing scary about announcements, but yet, here I am, scared. So, nonetheless, I'm going to read verbatim. My speech and presentation professors back in the day would be ashamed at me right now. Anyway, the biggest announcement we have for this week is that in August, from the 26th to 27th, we are going to be having a women's retreat. The theme is Rest and Delight. We hope that it is a quick stint away from the real world for all of us to get together to spend time in Jesus, in the Word, resting, delighting, just getting back to our roots and where our safe space is in Jesus. Um, It's going to be at Cran Hill, so not too far away. Um, There are going to be meals and places to sleep, and there's going to be fun activities from walks to hopefully some yoga to a chance to sit and knit if you are a knitter like me. Um, So we really hope you can join us. The cost is going to be $60 a person, but if that's something that overwhelms you, please do not let the cost be the stop. Please come to me, to Camille, anyone at the church, and we will make it work for you to join us. This is for all women, no age restrictions, no life restrictions. Just come and be with us. Um, We really want you there. We want to be together. We want to get to know each other. Um, The best part about coming to Redemption City is that it's a small community where we can really love on each other where we are in those moments. Um, And then, for those of you who call Redemption City home, we see radical generosity as a way to move gospel ministry and missions forward here in Grand Rapids and around the world. You can give online, text any dollar amount to 8432, or drop your cash or check in the box in the back. So um, we have a wonderful, generous congregation here with what you have seen with what's been done with Laundry Love and We just thank you for your generosity and love to see it moving forward. And now I'm sweating too much, and Abby's going to come up and do the scripture. I woke up, and I rode my fixie to the coffee shop where I was a barista, and I made made coffee all morning, and then it was my lunch break, and I sat down uh, at the window surrounded by uh, bike messengers, because that's that's who hung out at our coffee shop downtown Columbus, and I, I pull out my phone and I check uh, eHarmony because uh, I'm old, and that, that that was my online dating platform of choice back then. And um, this moment on my lunch break was at a tail end of a three month membership I had purchased in eHarmony at, at a at a, a low moment, a moment of loneliness. Uh, and at that point, I was pretty grumbly at eHarmony. I felt like I had been duped because they you know they talk about an algorithm compatibility, all that stuff, and basically what I came to see after three months is that uh, they just paired me with like any female within 100 miles who clicked that she was a Christian. Uh, that was it. That was like the, the, the compatibility, and in the Midwest, everybody clicks that button, and um, especially 10 years ago and stuff, uh, and I, I was confused because the first question on an eHarmony profile is, what is the one thing you're most passionate about? Uh, which I think is a great question uh, to do in there. I mean, just like get, in it, get some content out there, right? Uh, right up front. But man, I, I don't know where the breakdown was because most of the, the girls I was matched with like took that question to mean, what's anything you've ever been interested in ever for at least a little bit? <laughs> so it'd be like 
biking and shopping and music and he's like traveling and like this paragraph. It said the question was clear. One thing. And, and, and a lot of these you know, Christians wouldn't even like mention anything about God. And I was confused and disillusioned. But for some reason this day I checked for the first time in a while and there was this girl named Camille in my matches. And the answer to her question, what is the one thing you're most passionate about in life, was something like, I just read a book that said all of life's problems stem from seeing people as big and God as small. So I'm passionate about seeing God in all his bigness. My breath caught in my chest. The next question is, what do you look for in a partner? And she said, he must love Jesus, orphans, and dumb and dumber, in that order. And I was done for. I was like, okay, this, this is it. And I, I was like so caught up that uh, I, I took a screenshot because I was like, I can't respond now. I'm at the end of my break. I got to wait till I get off work. What if the profile goes away? It was like I, all the chick flick scenarios. Like I found the one, but her profile's deleted. And um, I sent her a message and we, we started talking. Little did I know, this is another story, but I was one of three guys that sent her a message. So I was like in this bachelorette type competition that I clearly won. Um, but I was in. Uh, she wasn't yet, of course, because I was a strange man from the internet. But uh, I was resolute that I was going to marry Camille. And we hung out for about two weeks, uh, two or three weeks, you know, before she, take notes, ladies, like before she let me take her on a date, like alone, she had me come over for dinner with her friends. She invited me to her community group, which coincidentally they split up into guys and girls that night and then like grilled me. Uh, <laughs> And after a couple weeks of hanging out a lot, uh, we were, we were uh, caught up in our feelings, as the kids say these days, and Camille looked at me and said, what is going on here? I'm not quite sure where she was going with that question, but I said in response, I don't want to freak you out, but I'm trying to marry you. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, maybe don't take notes. Uh, but it worked. I think she did freak out maybe a little bit, but lucky for me, clarity was something she was looking for. And so I think, I, I think she married me largely because I was clear, because I was certain. I didn't have a lot I was bringing to the table. Uh, I like to think I've grown, and she, there's some other things she likes about me now, but uh, that, 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 got, that got me uh, to, the, you know, to the altar. And I go into this How We Met story because I think it captures the heart of our text this morning. Uh, which if I had to put it in a phrase, it would be, I choose you. Our text is probably the most intimate, sensual, erotic words in all of scripture. Uh, Last week, Pastor Mike served us well by talking about friendship in marriage and the parts of marriage that are not sexy, the parts that are difficult or frustrating. And I had to like giggle when I was listening to Pastor Mike's sermon because that is just not the text that we're in today. Today, the clothes are off, the desire is high, the naked and unashamed vision of, that Scripture gives for marriage is, is front and center. And the main idea, the theme I want us to consider is the, the fierce, passionate exclusivity and choice that are at the heart of marital intimacy. According to Scripture, at the heart of passionate marital intimacy is an exclusivity and a choice of one another that allows the intimacy to flourish. And scripture is crystal clear that marriage here on earth 
is simply a shadow of a greater reality. It's a, it's a mystery. It's a, the mystery of God's love for us in the gospel. And so pastorally, the ache of my heart, my prayer for you this morning uh, is that if you are here today, you are in Christ, the intensity, the exclusivity of this passage would cause you to feel the breathtaking reality that the God of the universe who spoke all things into existence and hung all the billions of stars in their place in the ever-expanding cosmos looked at you and said, I choose you. You are precious to me. I love you. Sometimes we consider the theological implications of our salvation uh, or God's choice. We, we get the, the, theological and general about God saved sinners, or Jesus died for sinners and was raised to life to bring people to God, uh, which is all, of course, true. But sometimes I think, I wonder if we hide from the fact, like the glaring, blazing, bright light of God's ferocious love for you, that, that God looked at you. God looked at Andrea and Josh and Amanda and said, I choose you. And I'm sorry if I made you guys uncomfortable, but if I could, I would go through the whole room and say everybody's name because the discomfort of getting called out from the, the pulpit in love is, is nothing compared to being called out by the ferocious love of God for you. God chose you to be his beloved son, his beloved daughter. and You are loved, and as the Jesus Storybook Bible would say, you are lovely because God loves you, loves you. So as we come to our text, let me just say that the passage today is a biblical ideal sermon. It's God's beautiful vision and design for marriage, for sexuality, for romance. It's lofty and glorious, poetic, imaginative. And I want to be as faithful as possible to the text as it is in scripture. But before that, right, I just want to acknowledge here at the beginning that because of sin, because of brokenness of the world, pretty much all of our experiences uh, have fallen or will fall far, far short of the ideal. Have, have you guys heard of the, the sexual brokenness test? This is how you can tell if you have any like brokenness that needs to be healed. You take two fingers and you put it here on your wrist. And if you feel a pulse, you probably have some sexual brokenness that you need God to heal uh, in your life. I just want to acknowledge that, but I don't want that reality to damper the beauty of God's vision. I don't want to miss out on what the text is actually saying, what God is wanting to show us. Instead, I want the beautiful vision, hopefully, to, to help us grow and heal both practically in our marriages and ultimately lead us to the healing that's found in Jesus. There are two main gems of wisdom uh, that we see in our passage that I think give, give some shape to what it means to choose, what it means to say, I choose you to your spouse practically in marriage. The first bit of wisdom that we see in the passage is uh, the incredible power of attention in romance and marriage. Choosing your spouse means you pay very close attention to them. Like when I, I, I scoured the internet researching Camille, you know, when I first met her, before I, I had talked 
Uh, you, we, we pay close attention to your spouse, considering what, what makes her tick, what he likes, what, what you appreciate about them and say that to them, what seems to be life-giving and how can you facilitate more of that life-giving type of, uh, type of stuff and what is draining. And so as we move through the poetry, just consider, just consider the, the level of attention that would go into these words the thought and consideration on behalf of mostly the, the husband does most of the speaking in this, this chunk of the, past, of the book. Uh, the time he would have spent observing his beloved and thinking carefully about her and, and being imaginative and coming up with metaphors and similes that would capture it. And, and, and then just consider how difficult it is. And we, just, we could be honest and show ourselves grace in real life marriage to pay attention to each other, like this most fundamental aspect of a relationship. You know, you're, you're side by side, like trying to keep the kids alive, the car's running, the house still not burned down or whatever, and you get the kids to sleep, and what? You're side by side paying attention to other people on, on, on TV. And I'm not trying to like make anybody feel guilty. I'm just saying there's, there's some profound wisdom in this simple but very important work of paying attention to each other. The second thing uh, the second wisdom is that uh, is generosity. The man is verbally generous to his woman, and the woman is visually generous to her husband. Choosing means we we imitate God's generosity the way He is generous with us. And I think there's some profound wisdom in this pattern uh, amongst the genders. The part of the beauty and challenge of biblical marriage between a man and a woman is that it involves choosing the the other. Embracing fierce exclusivity requires us to love the other, the, the, someone different than me, the, the other gender. And I know it's not politically correct to say, but boys and girls are different. And not all the time, but frequently, what women most appreciate to hear uh, is kind, affirming, affectionate words from their man about how they... Feel, uh, how they, how the, the man feels about them, so they feel seen and cared for. And not all the time, but frequently, men tend to be very visual and appreciate the intimacy of seeing their wives physically. To feel chosen by being let in to see their wives in intimate ways that are only for them. And what can happen, again, not all the time, but frequently, is we, we try to be generous with our spouses in ways that make sense to us or that are that natural to us instead of the ways that our spouse would most appreciate. So just consider the wisdom of the scriptures and how we can move towards our spouses with generosity. Let's dive into our text, starting in verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 4. You are beautiful, my darling, like the lovely city of Tisra. You, yes, as beautiful as Jerusalem, with as majestic as an army with billowing banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overpower me. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down from the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep that are freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind the veil. Now this section that we're reading, I think, reads really well if we consider it a poem from the the time of engagement, the season of of a relationship and engagement, before marriage, but a time when a choice has been made and there's the excitement and hope of a life together and the hope of sexual intimacy is sky high and the man is being verbally generous, singing the praises of his woman. 
and he's describing with the stuff with the cities, he's describing her general presence by comparing her to the, these beautiful cities or majestic grand cities and the, the effect of her presence. Like if you've ever been in a ginormous city and you're just overwhelmed by the scope and grandeur and, uh, of the city. And he says, turn your eyes away, they overpower me. Um, I don't know if you know this, but this sermon series is unofficially sponsored by Mike Wal- Mark Wahlberg. Uh, we, he's been mentioned once already. And my favorite, one of my favorite lines from a Mark Wahlberg movie is from Date Night, when Mark Wahlberg is like dating this movie star, and Steve Carell says about his girlfriend, it's like, looking at your girlfriend is like staring into a jet engine, you know? And I think it's like such a great picture. You're just like, oh, you know, it's like so beautiful and also kind of hurts. And uh, I love that. He goes on to describe her physically, but not all of her. This stands in stark contrast of what comes next, so hold on tight. But what does he describe? Everything from the neck up. Her hair, the beauty of her hair, the splendor of her smile, the color of her cheeks. And just consider the beauty and value of this relatively short stage in a relationship when you're committed but not fully and in view of not awakening uh, sexual love before it's time, using words to affirm things above the neck. And in marriage, consider how careful affirmation and attention to your partner's presence and face can create deeper intimacy. So here's a challenge for you guys, married people. Set a, set a timer for four minutes and do four minutes of eye contact with your spouse. It's not a staring contest. Like you can blink and talk and laugh and stuff. It's a little bit, little bit awkward, uh, at, le- at least at the beginning, uh, but just embrace four minutes of looking into the eyes of your beloved uh, and then name your next child after me because that's normally what, where this exercise ends up. It's careful attention to your beloved. Look where this engagement poem goes next. <clears throat> Verse eight. Even among 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless young women, I would still choose my dove, my perfect one. He says, if I had a king's harem of ladies, I would still choose you every single time. You, my love, are the only one for me. This is a part of the thrill of the engagement season that you realize that someone has chosen you. Someone is saying no to all the other people on the planet to say yes to you. We were at a a wedding last weekend, and um, the, my sister-in-law's wedding, and they decided to uh, write their own vows, which when I heard that, I'm always like, you know, okay, here we go, you know, because it's like, I love your smile, and I love you, make me laugh, and it's like, that is not a vow, but, but my sister-in-law did great. Uh, she said, she looked at her, her husband-to-be and said, I choose you today, tomorrow, and every day after, and you know, the groom is just a puddle, just, you know. Uh, And it was beautiful to behold. But this this posture that we see, this I choose you above everyone else, ladies, this is the the, the wooing that we're looking for. This is the relational habitat for romance, the soil for intimacy. The choice is made and celebrated. Don't settle for any guy that will will have you. Don't settle for some passive guy that you can kind of like cajole into marrying you. Wait for a guy who is sure and embraces the choice. Sexuality and romance are not means to get someone to pick you. They, they, they are what arise when a man sees you and chooses you. And guys, choose. Make a choice. Pick a woman and be about her. Yes, there's, 
There's space for questions and doubts, whatever. But listen, they will never fully go away. So choose. Choose a woman and keep on choosing her for the rest of your life. That's how she becomes the one. Look at the rest of verse 9. The favorite of her mother, dearly loved by the one who bore her. The young women see her and praise her. Even queens and royal concubines sing her praises. Who is this, arising like the dawn, as fair as the moon, as bright as the sun, as majestic as an army, with billowing banners? Here, the man is describing how other people see and describe his woman. I think the man's getting at her character, her reputation with other people. Their relationship is not just in a vacuum. He was not just basing his feelings on Instagram or whatever. Uh, this woman is admired and respected by her people, uh, by, uh, by her family. And this is powerful wisdom, helpful wisdom for dating and engagement. Don't be in a vacuum. Get to know one another's family, church community. Let other people speak into your relationship. You know, Camille invited me to her community group before she let me take her on a date. And we got dinner with her pastor and his pastor and her, the pastor's wife. Um, so if you're if you and if you're single now, like if you're not dating or whatever, like use this time to sow seeds of deep relationships and friendship and church community with older people, with friends, with families who can speak into your life, affirm strengths they see, uh, give you good advice, so that when slash if you find a potential mate, you have this whole community of people being like, this girl is amazing, you lucky dog, this guy is so great with my kids, I can't wait for him to be a dad, like what weight would that carry to someone who's trying to figure out if they should, if they should marry you? So to recap, the man is verbally generous, praising her presence, her face. He's abundantly clear that he would choose her over all the supermodels in the world. He's affirmed her character, and look what happens to the woman in verse 11. She starts to speak. I went down to the grove of walnut trees and out of the valley to see the new spring growth, to see whether the grapevines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my strong desires had taken me to the chariot of a nobleman. So this, uh, according to commentators, are some of the most complicated verses to understand. But I think, I think we can get the gist. I mean, it's a poem. She's caught up in her feelings. She's, her desires take control. She's entering into this beautiful springtime of love, opening herself up to being delighted and pursued like this. And before she even knew what was happening, she's caught up. And I love the imagery of the chariot. I think it's amazing. It's, it, it, there's so much room to play with it because uh, the chariot probably would have been the fastest vehicle uh, available back then. And it would have been expensive, something only the richest people would be able to afford. It would have been a thrilling ride. Like, imagine if all you've ever experienced is walking or riding on a donkey, you know, and then like a stallion with, with wheels, you know, on a chariot behind it uh, were to sweep. It's, it's like the first drop of a roller coaster ride. It's just like unbelievable excitement catches you up. And there's a sense that her beloved is the nobleman swooping in with his love, with the metaphorical chariot and taking her away. And after that, in verse 13, it says, 
uh, you, you have the, the, the community speak again. The young women of Jerusalem say, return, return to us, O maid of Shulam. Come back, come back, that we may see you again. And, and the man, what does the man say? Why do you stare at this young woman of Shulam as she moves so gracefully between two lines of dancers? Like, I picture, you know, a groom after the wedding reception. You know, he's just like driving his chariot, like, sorry, every, all friends, like, we got to go. She is mine. We have things to go, th- things to do. And so now we move into a different season. We move from engagement, some PG wooing, other people speaking, to probably the most intimate erotic words in scripture. The man begins describing his woman again, but he's not staying from the neck up. Verse 13 kind of sets the scene that she's dancing. You know, she moves gracefully between two lines of dancers. And then he goes on to describe what he sees as she dances. He's paying attention. He's being verbally generous about what he sees. And so, in the context of the book of Song of Songs, this is the fourth time that this man that has done a slow burn description of his woman. And I think if you said this a lot, it's not like a straight chronological like narrative or whatever. It's, it's very fluid or what. But the the order is intentional. I think there, it was put together in with with intentionality. And so, consider this poem that comes after a lot of intimacy that we've already seen in the book. A lot of romance already in the book. A poem that is passionately, that passionately and shamelessly repeats lines that this man has already used. And a poem that is significantly more erotic than the other poems. And so, as we're just considering the the poetry and what it might be showing us, imagine with me that this poem is a man beholding his beloved wife 10, 20, 40 years into into marriage, dancing in front of him in a very visually generous way. And I think what what we see here shows us some meaningful uh, essence of what choosing looks like from the woman's side. She's choosing her man to be with, caught up in his chariot, and she chooses him. She chooses to let him see her And it's a gift, it's a grace. Seeing her affirms and delights him. Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel is perfectly formed, like a goblet filled with mixed wine. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is as beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabin. Your nose is as fine as the Tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. Your head is majestic as Mount Carmel, and the sheen of your hair radiates royalty. The king is held captive by its tresses. So he starts with her feet because she is dancing and works her way up from there, being very clear about all the different things that he likes. Uh, it, it, some of the commentators suggested that the, the, using the term navel is, be, is, the, is trying, the Bible trying to be subtle. Uh, I don't know how subtle it is, but uh, I'm not going to exegete that super, super deeply. Uh, but he moves up from there, you know, describing, uh, describing her breast the way you, would, you see two fawns in the forest. Like, you'd be still. It's like almost like awe, quiet, maybe hold your breath. 
And then when he gets to her neck and eyes and nose and head, he is falling all over himself to describe the reverence and delight that he feels for her. I think it's important to note, she isn't hanging her neck in shame. She's not embarrassed. She's not like checked out with her eyes glazed over. She's confident with her head held high and her hair flowing down her back and her eyes are looking deeply into his as she dances. She's confident, dignified. And he said, you would captivate the most powerful king. She's generously letting her husband see her. Can we just behold the Bible? It's okay to be squirmy, but behold the word of God, the God who made our bodies, affirms our bodies, and we can glorify him in how we appreciate our spouse's body, all of it, even the most intimate parts. And you see this mutual generosity. He's paying attention, verbally affirming her body. She's being visually generous, filling his mind with the beauty that he enjoys, the beauty that is by marriage, by God design, uh, his to enjoy and his alone. This is so important. Men, please hear me. The verbal generosity started way before the visual generosity. The woman is responding to feeling seen, affirmed in her presence and character, and confident in his clear and passionate, exclusive desire for her alone and no one else. Verse 3 and 4 are repetitions of the previous poem, which, guys... Just hear it. It's like, it's okay to repeat yourself. Like, it doesn't have to be original. Like, you know, play the, the, the oldies but goodies, the, the, the compliments that you, you believe and you like and you appreciate again and again. But husbands, your attention, your words, your affirmation are meant to be God's gift to your wife, a means through which his love, attention, and delight in her can be expressed. Say simple, true things. Be goofy. Be goofy with how she makes you feel. I feel like I got to make the obligatory, like, don't use the heap of wheat line or whatever. Maybe use the heap of wheat line. Like, have fun with it. Be, be, make a fool of yourself, affirming how much you like your wife and like what you see. It might be a challenge, a growth edge for us, but I think it's, it's part of what it means to love your wife, to, as scripture would say, live with her in an understanding way. And I would say, Knowing the stage of life of a lot of our church, I think this is especially important in the childbearing years. As bodies change from pregnancy, those are tender, vulnerable years for women. I mean, body image, body insecurity is so hard as it is without little people invading it and causing it to change. So men, affirm your desire for your wife in those years especially. And I would say even parts of her body that have changed to bear your children. Let that be a beautiful, sexy part of how you see your woman. God designed her body to bring eternal souls into the world through your union. You can celebrate and appreciate that design. She needs to hear it from you. Now with that word to the men, let me just reiterate, ladies, that this is a a vision, a a biblical ideal, a description of God's design, a well-loved, affirmed, secure, chosen woman letting her husband delight in her. This is by no means a command or something to be forced. 
But consider the invitation to be visually generous with your husband as a way to serve and encourage him. Let him see you, you as you are right now. Not a future version of yourself. You might not, you know, you might not look the way you want to or the way society says that you should, but God has joined you and your husband together. God is inviting you to bless your husband by being visually generous. You are what God has for your husband. Sure, in times when you're being intimate together, but also just in normal life, around the house, getting into the shower. But please hear me. This is important. Depending on the emotional climate of your marriage, this might be impossible right now. This might seem impossible, and that is okay. Again, there's no pressure. Maybe the invitation for you is is a few steps or a lot of steps back to consider what it would take, what work might need to happen in your marriage to create a place where this would be seem possible or even good news. If there's shame, past trauma, pornography addiction, emotional coldness or you know, spirit of uh, criticalness in your relationship, then the first thing to do might be to just start addressing some of those issues and, or seek help from a pastor or a counselor. Friend, there's no limit to God's power to renew, redeem, or even resurrect a marriage, there's, there's hope. Back to the fun stuff. Verse six. Oh, how beautiful you are, how pleasing, my love, how full of delights. You are, a, you are slender like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters and the fragrance of your breath like apples. The dance continues, and the man is getting excited, essentially saying that he's like, when do I get to join the dance? Uh, I want you. And, the, and just, again, to embrace what Scripture is showing us about marriage. It, the metaphor goes from two fawns, you know, with bated breath still, to climbing a tree and, and grabbing some fruit or whatever. This is playful, delighted, marital intimacy. Again, not prescriptive. It's not a command that it has to be this or look this way for you or whatever, but hear the heart, hear the essence of what God's word is showing us as as part of marital intimacy. And verse nine is my favorite. The man says, he's so excited, he starts like blessing her kisses. He's like doing a benediction on her kisses. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. And then the woman cuts him off and she says, yes, Wine that goes down smoothly for my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. She's exalting in the, this whole process. She weighs in uh, how she's experiencing it. She's like, yes, my kisses are for you. She's been relatively quiet up to now, and now she speaks. And in verse 10, is huge. She says, I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. This is the security she feels I belong to him, and I, I'm his. And you see this beautiful cycle happening. There's affirmation and security from the man's verbal generosity and choice, which creates a safe place for the woman to be visually generous, uh, which then inflames the man's desire, uh, which then seems to inflame the woman's desire. She says, I'm yours. You have chosen me. And so, in verse 11, she says, Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. 
Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see, the great, see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. There the mandrakes give off their fragrance and the finest fruits are at our door. New delights as well as old, which you have saved, which I have saved for you, my lover. The spring side, or the, the spring countryside has been the, the, the romantic getaway language throughout the whole book. It's the spring and the country was the, the, the way the Song of Songs talks about a place for joyous, free, Love making, And she says, I'm going to give you my love. I choose you to give it to. I've saved it up. I've not chosen anyone else to give it to. The finest fruits are at her door. She's saved up for her beloved. In the woman's response, or the, in the woman's choice of the man, we see that this generosity of the woman, both visually and sexually, is a response to the man's choice, the man's exclusivity. He says, I'd pick you over anyone else. You are my only one. And she says, come away with me and drink deeply. Eat the fruit, the delights I've saved up for you. And I, and I love that it says new delights as well as old. Again, like working with the framework of a, a married couple, 10, 20, 40 years into building sexual intimacy. They enjoy the stuff that are tried and true that they've done for a long time. And the woman has some new things that she might want to try. This is a beautiful long-term vision of marital intimacy. So a couple of takeaways. Married folks, there's some wisdom here that a good sex life in marriage takes a lot of time and attention. Romance and sex are this very complex, mysterious overlap, emotional, physical, relational, spiritual dynamics it's going to take time, practice, curiosity for it to flourish. Sometimes over the course of the, the decades, it waxes and wanes. It might cool off for a while and require some tender care to warm back up. I say that hopefully to encourage you. If, it's not, if your marriage or sex life is not where you'd like it to be, hopefully it's encouraging that, that there's space for growth. And you don't have to wait around and hope that it gets better. The wisdom is to choose each other by, being, uh, by paying attention and being generous. Each day in small ways, not you know, some grandiose act. I heard a pastor talking to a very rich church about the importance of taking your wife on a date. And he's like, if you haven't taken your wife on a date since you married her, like the step one is not to like fly her to Aspen for a weekend. Like, go get a hamburger and say you're sorry and ask her about her week. You know, like start with small things and move towards your spouse. Start conversations, ask questions, share little experiences that will foster a, a friendship that can be set on fire in, in romance. And so we can have more and more seasons of our marriage that look like this, these poems here. This might mean look, like getting away overnight without kids or at least date nights where you know this is very hard. You don't talk about the budget, the kids, house projects, like you're just on a date. <laughs> You're not, it's not a business meeting. It's just, it's just a date. Uh, but that, that is how, uh, that, that, that is going to be the seedbed for seeing some of this fruit grow. And single people, look how the woman ends the poem in chapter 8, verse 4. Promise me, O woman of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. This refrain is repeated all throughout the book, uh, in uh, this book of poetry. And it's, it's not like, 
a side thing or whatever. It's directly related to the beautiful intensity of married, sec- marriage, married sexuality. And I just like love the language. Like, don't awaken love. It's like, lo- it's not gone. It's not dead. It's asleep. It's saving up his energy or her energy. I don't know what gender love is, but it's like letting it rest, letting it get ready uh, for the time when it can, it can awaken, fully rested and ready to go. So I know the, the sleeping love season can be long and lonely and hard, uh, even, even painful, but it, it, these, passage, this, these words are in Scripture because the desire is to have pleasure and delight inflamed, ready to go, not worn out and tired by the time you get to marriage. And I know that there's some of us here, men and women, who have, you know, using the language of the text, not saved our fruits for just marriage, promiscuity, pornography, abuse in our backgrounds. But friends, there's redemption. It's not too late. You can begin now. Start working through that stuff now. Bring your guilt and shame before God. Receive grace for it. And moving forward, live in redemptive purity. God has created us where he can rewire our brain and reset our, our baselines and heal us. Don't believe the lie that just because you've done some stuff sexually, you might as well keep on doing it. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, stop now and pursue purity. God can cleanse and redeem and heal. Now, I hope to make us all uncomfortable by staring into the jet engine of God's love for us. As I study this passage, this very erotic passage, it was overwhelming that God would use this kind of language to describe the relationship, to give shape and form and essence to his relationship with his beloved people, his, to, to describe his choice and his desire for us. And it's so redemptive. Look at Ephesians 1.4. It says, even before he, God, made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ, what? To be holy and without fault in his eyes. What if our past is full of sexual brokenness, abuse, and promiscuity? While we were still sinners, while we were hostile to God, abusing sexuality for our own selfish desires, giving ourselves away to lesser loves, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy. God's choice of you makes you holy. When we are chosen in Christ, God looks at us, he sees us, he pays attention to us, and in Christ we are without fault. What love is this? What scandalous good news? We are lovely because he loves us. God makes you holy in his choice. He makes you pure without fault in Christ. What should our response be? In our passage, the woman's response to the man's choice is intimacy, union. Her, her love set aside for him alone. That sounds a lot like the, the first commandment, you know? Have no other gods before me. This is a picture, again, maybe uncomfortably, an uncomfortably intense picture of the response God invites us to make in his radical, passionate choice of, of us, of you. I think this gives some very powerful, intimate shape to Romans 12.1 which says this, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Holy means set apart, devoted unto him. Just like the, the woman set herself apart for her beloved. I am my beloved. He claims me as his own. I choose to give myself only to him. I mean, to who else? Whom else? What else would I present my body, my life, my habits? Other than the, the one who chose me in love in Christ. A while ago, I was on a silence and solitude retreat. I was doing these spiritual exercises, and it, the, the program invited me to spend an entire morning meditating on these, these verses I'm going to read in a minute from Isaiah. Uh, these are words that God spoke to his people, the people that he chose, after they had, in God's own words, poured after other gods, set up temples to, to other idols. And after they had done all that, he says these words. And meditating on these words were like staring into the jet engine to me. Like I couldn't handle it. was like the sun. You know, my, my soul just couldn't handle it. I found myself like scrambling to like theologize it away or, or you know, climb up into the clouds to where I could hide from it. But mercifully, after an hour or two, my soul quieted it just gave me some sweet time feeling the breathtaking extravagance of these words from, from our God who sees you in love. Let me read them over you. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. You are honored, and I love you. Let me pray. Oh, Father... What can we do in the face of such love as we behold the power of sexuality, the beauty of this vision, as we grapple with the feelings that brings up and past brokenness that it brings up? Father, would you meet us with your loving gaze who in Christ um, makes us holy, makes us without fault? Father, I pray for the married couples here and these tender, this tender topic and the, the great power for joy and intimacy and also the great power for, for pain and shame and miscommunication. Father, would you hold them in this? Would you bless conversations uh, today, this week, as they talk about the, the state of their marriage? And pray for the single folks uh, <clears throat> as they seek to follow scriptures and not awaken love before it's time. Father, would you meet them in their singleness? Would you quiet their souls with your love? Would you give them hope and this beautiful vision of what you, what you have designed? Father, ultimately, would we be people that, that know about your love uh, with our whole being, heart, uh, body, soul, strength? Uh, would that be our defining reality? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Man, as we gather around...